Good morning. Always winter and never Christmas. In C.S. Lewis's Narnia, the white witch Jadis rules the land, and under her reign, Narnia is always winter and never Christmas. Now, that sounds truly terrible, considering that Christmas is about the only thing that makes winter worthwhile. Now, let's be clear about what kind of winter I'm talking about. I'm not talking about Phoenix winters. I'm not talking about 70-degree days where the ryegrass grows green and tall and where everybody comes outside after months of solitary confinement. I'm, I'm not talking about those winters. No, I'm talking about real winter. Real winter is cold. It's very cold. It's monotonous, gray skies. It's bitter wind and freezing rain. It's mounds of snow just mocking you as you try to go about your normal day. It's scraping ice off your windshield before the sun even comes up. Real winter is creaking knees and hips and shoulders. Real winter is month after month of melancholy. Any of you who have lived in the Upper West or the Midwest or the East Coast or New England, you know what I'm talking about. Tens of thousands of people come to Phoenix in the so-called winter months in order to escape the perils of the real winter which they left. Now, to be fair, winter does have some beauty to it. I took this photograph off the back porch of my grandparents' home in Maine, and all you can see is this beautiful wall of birch trees and the sunlight is just glistening off their frozen branches and the sky is a beautiful blue and there is this perfect blanket of white snow untouched by anything. There are rare winter days like that and they are remarkable when they happen. There are winter days when the stillness and the silence of it is a welcome retreat from going there and doing that. Winter brings excitement, and sledding, and skiing, throwing snowballs as hard as you can at other people's faces. Winter means we get to curl up in front of a fire and sip something warm. These are the sentimental parts of winter that we like to think about when fall arrives and the temperatures go down and we have forgotten how truly terrible winter is. Christy and I both went to a Christian college in Ohio called Cedarville University, and around the center of campus is a small body of water called Cedar Lake. The chapel, the academic buildings, the campus life buildings, and the dormitories are all scattered around the outside of that lake, which means that in order to get from one building to another, you pretty much have to always walk around Cedar Lake. Now, Cedar Lake is not too shabby in the summertime, but we don't go to college in the summertime now, do we? Which means that most of the academic year, there is absolutely no pleasure in Cedar Lake at all. I can remember walking from one building to another while the temperatures are in the teens, and without anything to stop it, no buildings, no trees. Remember, this is flat cornfields in Ohio. The freezing wind would just whip across the lake and slam my face and sting my eyes until my nose turned into a spring of water. I found it so maddening. I am sure that at times I cursed. I think perhaps the least sanctified place on campus would be the sidewalks around Cedar Lake in the wintertime. Why am I talking about winter this morning? Well, 
Today is the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent marks the beginning of a new church year. We often talk about the Feast of Pentecost as the birth of the church. And indeed it is, but Advent is really where it all begins. Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival. The arrival of what, we might ask? The arrival of God. Advent doesn't begin with the arrival of God. It ends with the arrival of God on Christmas. And so in order to get to Christmas, we have four weeks to get through. Therefore, Advent is a season of waiting, of longing, and of hope for the arrival of God. At least for those of us in the northern hemisphere, Advent takes place in winter. Air grows cold, days shorten, light retreats, leaves fall off trees, grass browns, and animals hibernate. It's like all of nature becomes still, takes a break, and simply surrenders to winter's presence. And yet everything and everyone knows that eventually there will come a day when winter will end and spring will return. Like winter, Advent is a season in which we wait in coldness and darkness and lifelessness for an arrival, not of spring, but of God. Advent is not unlike the way it was in the beginning, in Genesis 1, when God's Spirit was brooding over the face of the waters. The earth was formless and void. They had not yet broken open with life and with beauty. But then God spoke. And in that moment, there was Adventus, the arrival of God on the scene. Now, I'm all for God's arrival. But raise your hand if you like to sit in cold darkness waiting for it. We don't like to wait. If we need something, all we do is go to the store, or better yet, order it online and get it ordered and delivered the same day. Nor do we really like darkness all that much. At nighttime, the brightest place on the planet is our country, and the brightest single spot not far from here, Las Vegas. For these reasons, Advent is not easy, not if you do it right, not if you willingly give yourself to the purpose of these four weeks. But why do Advent at all if we don't have to? Plenty of people don't do Advent. Plenty of Christians don't do Advent. Can't we just skip it and get to Christmas already? It is perhaps that Advent is not easy, that makes it all the more essential for us. We need to be confronted by the cosmic tension that exists in the world. The tension between the already and the not yet. Christ has already redeemed us. His kingdom is already here, and yet his kingdom is not yet fully here. And so we continue to wait for the consummation of all things. We are a people in between. Advent is the seasonal representation of this in-between, the age between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ. And in that season in-between, we are required to wait a while, to wait a while. The problem is that rather than contemplating a universe covered in spiritual darkness and awaiting a Savior, we would very much just rather skip fast-forward to Christmas. The problem is that when we do that, much of the meaning of Christmas is lost. 
It's been said there's a war on Christmas, and I think there's something to that, just not the way we typically hear about. It is not the removal of Merry Christmas from the public square in order to promote religious freedom. Our country is built on the freedom of religion. It's actually the willingness of Christians to ignore Advent in favor of a premature celebration of Christmas full of materialism and pop religion, which has so successfully withered the very meaning of it all. Without having actually waited for a Savior, without actually having desired Him, without actually having felt our great need of Him, we can only half-heartedly celebrate, and it just doesn't feel all that special. That may sound dramatic, and perhaps it is, but I think it's true. Ironically, the passing over Advent may be part of the reason that Christmas is such an unhappy time of year, even for Christians. Christmas can feel so utterly artificial sometimes, and I don't mean fake Christmas trees. I'm not talking about the artificial lights we hang on our homes and businesses. I mean there's something that just doesn't feel right about celebrating a holly, jolly Christmas. Have you ever felt that way? There are times I just can't listen to Christmas music. And I don't mean playing Christmas music before Thanksgiving because everybody knows that's a sin. (laughs) I'm talking about listening to Christmas music in December. There are times I just can't do it. There are times I don't want to go to Christmas parties. There are times that I don't want to watch parades or go shopping. There are times I don't want to pretend that everything is holly jolly because it isn't. Things aren't merry. Terrorism is still happening. Wildfires are still burning. Children are still being separated from their parents at the border. Our health is still failing us. Our country is still being radically divided. Would you hang Christmas lights on a bombed-out church or in a burned-out forest or on the border wall or in a NICU or at an impeachment hearing? No, we wouldn't do that because it wouldn't fit. It wouldn't make sense to hang lights there. Artificial light can't cover up suffering. It can't fix our conflicts. And it doesn't really actually solve the problem of darkness. If that's true, then we might ask, is it even possible to celebrate a Merry Christmas? The answer is yes. And the way to do that is to observe Advent first. Writer Cheryl Bridges-John puts it this way, Advent is the acknowledgement that we just can't. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot reason ourselves into a world of light and happiness We cannot prevent the dark forces of poverty, abuse, and war. We need a Savior. We need Christ to come and bring about the power of a new creation. We just can't. We just can't. Artificial light does nothing. Only Christ's light will do. And so when Advent is finally over, And Christmas Eve comes. It truly is Mary. The answer to our longing was never that we needed gifts or that we needed time with family or whatever. It was that we needed Jesus. The second half of the Old Testament is very much like Advent. It was a time of prophets, wars, exiles, and waiting. 
Our Old Testament lesson for today comes from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, it tells us that Isaiah's call to the ministry of prophet came from God in the year that Uzziah, king of Judah, died, which is around 740 B.C. By and large, the book of Isaiah is a prophecy against the nation of Judah. But within it is a message of hope. In our passage from Isaiah 2 today, Isaiah declares this prophecy about Judah's future, and I want to read it again for us. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Sounds too good to be true. This was the beautiful promise of hope for God's people. Why was it a promise of hope? Because those things weren't presently happening in Israel. God's people weren't presently keeping the covenant. Therefore, nations weren't presently looking to Israel for salvation. And instead, Israel and Judah were warring with the nations around them. Their plowshares were presently becoming swords, and their pruning hooks were presently becoming spears. And eventually, just a few years after Isaiah began his ministry in 722, the Assyrians took away the northern kingdom of Israel. And later in 586 B.C., the Babylonians plundered Judah. Things were not going well for them. And they would continue not to go well for years to come. It was winter. Even after the Babylonian exiles returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the wall and rebuilt the temple, things continued to go poorly. The glory and the grandeur of it all was gone. It was artificial. It was winter. And after the prophet Malachi wrote, there was a silence for centuries. No more prophets, no more miracles, no more words from the Lord. It was winter. Generations of Jews were born and died in those years. People lived a full life and never got to see what was promised. How lonely and how God-forsaken must those years have felt. But God's plans are bigger and longer than our human lives are. And through his holy prophets, like we read from Isaiah, God had promised an end to Israel's winter. He had promised to put an end to the waiting and the darkness and the silence. And one day it happened. God himself, incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, burst on the scene. In the glory of old, Gabriel told Mary what was to come. In glory, Mary sang Magnificat. In glory, Mary visited Elizabeth as this beautiful painting depicts. In glory, Christ was born. In, in glory, the angels sang. In glory, Simeon prophesied, My eyes have seen your salvation, O Lord. God had finally arrived. It was momentous 
Adventists. I was listening to Radiolab on NPR this week, and there was a story about the world's longest-running experiment. Anybody listen to that? One. It's called the Pitch Drop Experiment, which is still going on at the University of Queensland in Australia. Back in 1927, Dr. Thomas Parnell, he set up this experiment to demonstrate the viscosity or the thickness of pitch which is the thickest fluid known to exist. Essentially, it's tar. And what he did was he heated some tar, and then he poured it into a glass funnel, and he let that tar cool for three years. And in 1930, he cut the bottom of that funnel off so that the pitch could flow out of the bottom. And the idea was to wait for the first drop of pitch to fall. And it took eight years for that to happen. Since that time, only nine drops have fallen. The quickest took seven years, the longest, 13. Here's the more amazing thing to me. No one has ever actually seen the moment in which the pitch has dropped. No one's ever witnessed it fall. It takes nearly a decade to happen, and when it does, it passes in a matter of seconds, and there's no way to know when it will fall. Dr. Parnell died without seeing it in the early 1960s. John Whitestone took over the experiment. He oversaw it for 50 years. He waited and watched, watched and waited, and yet he never saw the pitch drop. He missed it every single time. In 2013, Dr. Andrew White took over the experiment, and he hasn't seen it happen either. The tenth drop is expected to fall sometime in the next 14 years. <laughs> it's hard to wrap my mind around a 90-year-old experiment in which no one has actually ever seen the pitch drop. The expectancy, the angst of it is palpable. I cannot imagine the kind of patience that is required to oversee an experiment with a lifetime of waiting and perhaps longer. As I heard about this experiment and as I think about the time in between the drops of pitch, I'm reminded of Advent. It's waiting. It's suspense. It's isolation. It's brooding. It's maddening. But it's necessary. In Advent, we face our difficulties. We don't pretend our anxieties and our fears away. We don't cover up our wounds artificially. No, we lay everything bare with an honest sobriety before God. And in doing so, we gain the capacity to deeply acknowledge the world's need, our need of a Savior. And when that happens, God can touch our hearts in a special way. God draws near. The beauty of Advent is that God arrives in Advent. Like winter cannot stand up to the coming of spring, so our world cannot resist the coming of the Son of God. It is like Solomon portrays for us in the Song of Songs. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. 
And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. In Advent, Christ's light breaks in upon the darkness. Christ's song breaks in upon the silence. Christ himself breaks out of the womb. And our eyes awaken from winter's slumber. Christians awake, salute the happy morn, whereon the Savior of the world was born. Rise to adore the mystery of love, which hosts of angels chanted from above. With them the joyful tidings were begun of God incarnate, the Virgin's Son. Brothers and sisters, Advent is good for your soul. It may not always be pleasurable, but it is purposeful. If you don't already have them, I want to encourage you, you and your families, to begin Advent traditions. You can look at the Advent resources. There are some here in the narthex. There are even more that I provided for you online at livingfaithanglican.org. There are many more out there still. Light Advent candles when you sit down to eat. Slow down for evening prayer with your family. Teach your children the importance of waiting. Amen? Read a book on living in the tension. Listen to music which makes your heart yearn for Christ. Look at art that portrays light breaking in upon the darkness. All of these things can help you practice Advent. It's good for us to learn to look around and to acknowledge that things are not as they should be. And even then, especially then, to put our trust in the sure and steady hope of Christ's coming when all things will be made right. Because Christ will come. Adventists. As he himself said in the gospel passage from Matthew 24, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Just as there is a clearly defined moment when spring invades winter, just as there is a clearly defined moment when the pitch falls, in the same way there is a moment when Advent gives way to Christmas. As Paul puts it in Galatians 4.4, it's in the fullness of time that God has sent forth his Son. We rehearse that moment every Christmas Eve when we remember Christ bursting upon the very world which he created. And yet at all times in our lives as Christians, we actually engage in a perpetual advent as we wait for the second coming of Christ and his new creation. And what I want to leave you with this morning is that whenever it happens that someone actually witnesses the pitch drop, whenever it happens that someone actually witnesses the snow melt, whenever it happens that someone actually witnesses the arrival of God, the longer that person has waited and the more attentively that person has watched, the greater his or her joy will be. Great joy. In that day, when Christ comes, whenever it may be, it will be never winter and always Christmas. Amen.